Hello and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics, where we are going through Spanner's Pia Desideria, or Pious Desires, and talking about pietism as it was originally formulated, not the pietism that came later that gave us all a bad name. And we opened up by discussing how there were problems in the church. Every single problem, every corrupt condition that Spanner brings up in his book, you can draw a straight line from back there in the 17th century to today in the 21st century, year of our Lord 2023. But that said, Spanner in his day was courageous for attempting to diagnose what exactly was going wrong in the church. So we see here, he continues on the conspectus of corrupt conditions on clergy, an example of this. On the contrary, we find that not a small number of preachers regard as unimportant what the apostle mentioned to the Ephesians as something long since learned, namely that in Jesus there is righteous conduct, Ephesians 4 verse 21. Consequently, the common conception of the art of being saved, as most people imagine it, is not in accordance with the divine institution. If the preacher himself does not know this, how are his hearers to be brought to the point of recognizing what is necessary? I am alarmed and ashamed whenever I think of the fact that the teaching of an earnest inner godliness is so unfamiliar and strange to some people that those who zealously cultivate such godliness can hardly escape being suspected as secret papists, Weigelians, or Quakers. In his time, the sainted Dr. Balthazar Meissner, who was respected for the purity of his doctrine, complained that one could hardly avoid the suspicion of Weigelianism or attachment to neo-sectarian teaching if one promoted godliness with proper zeal and constantly admonished the practice of what is taught. My dearly beloved brother-in-law, Dr. John Lewis Hartman, recently lamented this in section 3 of his Pastoral Theology, in which useful work I am especially eager to see printed soon in one volume. And he reproduces the verses that heap such a slanderous suspicion on that worthy man, the sainted Dr. John Gerhard. The next section here being the few stanzas of a poem from Gerhard saying, The man who vigorously promotes zeal for piety in this age, while also treating sacred theology, is counted a Rosicrucian or a Vigelian, and the stigma of shameful heresy is attached to him. Foul calumny, I suspect, that he spread, and credibility with his trifling gained, O blind intellects of men, blind hearts, frail judgment without power of discernment. First learn, I pray, who really is Vigelian. Discover first, I pray, who is a Rosicrucian. As rays of the sun scatter clouds in the sky, may brighter light distinguish true from false. And he continues, What greater evidence of calamity and corruption can there well be than to seek occasion for suspicion and evil report in things that properly deserve praise? Here the words apply, 
If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is funny that Spanner should bring up Dr. Johann Gerhard, widely considered to be the father of the Lutheran scholastic movement. What is scholasticism in the Lutheran context? Well, it kind of doesn't exist as a term without the scholastic movement in the medieval era of the Catholic Church, where you had guys like Thomas Aquinas and Abelard and all these other super incredibly bright schoolmen, as they were called, using Aristotelian logic and categories to help develop their theology and to continue developing philosophy. Now, scholasticism in the Roman Catholic Church I find personally abominable. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Why does Aristotle get treated as though he's a church father? How come reason becomes the operating principle in everything rather than the clear word of God? That's the fruit of Roman Catholic scholasticism. I will not be convinced otherwise. In the Lutheran context, though, the attempt is made to create a scholarly Lutheranism, to make an academic approach to it. So they were happy to start using syllogisms, happy to start using uh, Aristotelian presentations of things in very specific orders for their theological ideas. It was very, very on-the-nose logical. And I believe it was an attempt at countering things like the Jesuits. The idea is, hey, our church is under attack using these methods, so let's fight fire with fire. And let's defend the truth of our denomination, because Lutheranism is biblical Christianity. Why don't we do it with the forms of argumentation that people are used to in the universities? At a certain level, the scholastics have a point. Certainly, I would fault them for reigniting a love affair with philosophy that endangers sola scriptura. When you start relying on human reason too much, you can start, well, reasoning yourself into any number of doctrines, and the Christian faith is fractured. Traditionally, this has been our complaint against the Calvinists and the Arminians, that they use their reason to create theology and try to stuff the Bible into what they logicked out on their charts and everything. That's what Calvinists do while also claiming to be sola scriptura. So the Lutheran Church struggled, struggled during the crypto-Calvinist controversy to get philosophy out to get these logical ideas out and go with what the Bible says plainly. And if we can't figure it out with what the scripture says plainly, well, then we're out of luck there. We just have to chalk it to mystery or keep studying the scripture until we get our answer. The Lutheran scholastics would reply, well, okay, look, all truth is God's truth. He is truth. So if we can find something that's true using reason rightly ordered, that is, subordinated to scripture, then we're okay. After all, we have tradition in the Lutheran Church. 
but we are sola scriptura. Our tradition, lowercase t, must submit to what scripture says, and if your tradition contradicts scripture, it's out. We should say the same thing about reason, right? Well, kind of. On the one hand, it is good to read your dogmatics textbooks, it's good to read Peeper, it's good to read Mueller, and I would argue to a large extent C.F.W. Walther also. All these guys using scholastic methodology aren't wrong that it's good to present the truth in an understandable way, especially for everybody with a Western mind. The Western mind wants things in neat categories that are comprehensible. That's perfectly fine. We should have that. I wish the whole world had that same outlook where there is truth. I want to find out the truth. Let me take the steps necessary to understand it. But big, underlined, bold, italic, 15 point times new Roman font but there are severe problems with unchecked Lutheran scholasticism. Namely, that Lutheran scholasticism, left to its own devices, turns the whole of Christianity into nothing more than a collection of doctrines. You are a Christian if you believe, teach, and confess all the correct things. And you got a head full of knowledge, a bunch of facts, and then you go to church on Sunday to execute the proper use of those facts in your head. Scholasticism is not bad in and of itself, and the Lutheran scholastics did not intend for this to be that way. We just read Spanner recording this poem from Johann Gerhard saying, why is it that whenever I talk about piety, people say I'm a secret Vigelian or a Rosicrucian? What's up with that? That's not right. We should have zeal for piety. What's wrong with that? Gerhard, the scholastic dude, was complaining about that. And he's basically the father of Lutheran scholasticism. He never meant for it to go in this direction. But the Vigelian pantheist cult and the Rosicrucian alchemy cult were running amok and preaching piety in addition to all their bad ideas. So, of course, the Lutheran scholastics are saying, yeah, I want nothing to do with that. Let's go back to finding the truth. Let's go back to the scholastic method and present that in our universities. This is why... There have been so many books on law and gospel or bringing up Lutheran hermeneutics that forsake talking about the third use of the law because everybody around them that is a Anabaptist, a radical of some sort, a Quaker or whatever, well, they're using all this piety language and when people hear the third use of the law, well, maybe that would point them in that direction. We need to be super careful. And so you end up with dead orthodoxy and a dead orthodoxy that contradicts the scriptures. Because St. Paul writes, we are to be a living sacrifice for our Lord Christ. We are told that we should be getting closer to him. St. Peter gives us this list of virtues we should be adding one upon another, working on our own character and taking an active role in our sanctification. Of course, the Holy Spirit does 99.99999% of the work, 
but the Christian still has things to do. Unfortunately, the threat of these cults, especially because they're shinier, they're more new-looking, etc., that makes the Lutheran scholastics very nervous, so they turn Christianity into a bunch of head knowledge. And high masses, of course. Really, really cool-looking, super high liturgy masses. The other problem, the other huge problem that I have with Lutheran scholasticism, which is everywhere these days, by the way, is that so often it results in practical Pharisaism. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about salvation by works, as the Pharisees would teach, or earning your way to God, or hyperemphasis on the law. No, heaven forbid. Practical Pharisaism is where you decide that your religious structure and your hierarchy, your bureaucracy, is of utmost importance. The Pharisees had their Sanhedrin, and their Sanhedrin would send out little agents everywhere to find out what was this John the Baptist guy preaching. Uh, this Jesus dude going around in Galilee teaching so-called disciples, he's not authorized to do that. Who taught him? Who was his rabbi? Who, what seminary did you go to? It becomes so structured and authoritarian that Christian freedom is squished because there's a certain doctrine you have to teach and there's a certain way you have to go in a certain proper method and if you are going off on your own and not doing things with the proper certifications sir well it's time to persecute you Hans Nielsen Hagee went to jail for about 12 years for preaching the gospel to people that the state Lutheran Church of Norway would not reach he preached piety and they hated that. He preached the gospel, and they hated that too. Because Norway at the time, the law that they wanted in place, and certainly was already there, was you needed a license. You needed the state church to accept you. And didn't you know how great and how structured and how rational we are? You are going to preach exactly what we want you to preach. And don't you dare go to these stupid country folk. They have assigned churches for them to go to. He spent 12 years in jail for this. Is that godly? Is that in accordance with Holy Scripture? Of course not. If the state church of Norway was running things in Jerusalem in the first century AD, they would have arrested Christ faster than the Pharisees did. And they weren't the only governing body to do this. Spener ran into a ton of trouble himself, caused a ton of controversy, and people wanted him shut up. There were Lutheran pastors who were forbidden from preaching. There were Lutheran pastors who were assigned to like old folks' homes so they wouldn't teach anybody young enough to be influenced by the preaching of the third use of the law. This has been a real problem in scholastic-influenced Lutheran churches even to this day. And by all means, you probably know what I'm talking about there. And Spener calls it out very clearly, saying, Why are you surprised that I'm preaching what the Bible says about piety? Why are you surprised that I say the scriptures should transform our lives and make us devout? The pietist response to scholasticism in the Lutheran context is to say, 
Yes, all truth is God's truth, and you can show me this method here that demonstrates the truth. That is perfectly fine, but we do not ever sacrifice our devotion to God on the altar of human reason. We do not sacrifice our obedience to God's commandments for the sake of a nice methodology that answers the Jesuits. Of course we need to know our stuff. It is good to understand our doctrine. But with one hand you got paper open, the other hand you got Arndt or Spanner or Hagee or any other devotional writer. You cannot have one without the other. And if you sacrifice one for the other, you're going to go off in the weeds. This happened, by the way, in the Pietist movement. Yes, we have so many groups that might say they have a pietist heritage that really are just half-enthusiast, insane works cults. That is a big, fat problem. On the one hand, Spanner complains that if you preach the third use of the law, if you preach piety, following God's commandments and the transformation of the individual over time in sanctification, he gets accused of being a secret papist. But it also sucks setting foot in a church where somebody would say, oh, you had a couple of beers last night, huh? Well, look forward to burning for all eternity, sinner. I can complain all I want, saying that you can draw a straight line between the worst excesses of Lutheran scholasticism and the pernicious influence of Gerhard Ferda, and then modern Lutheran scholastics can rightfully point at me and go, you gave us the Lystadians, pietist. They have a point. Thank you. Yes, we now have the Lutheran Taliban with the Lystadians out there who tell their kids that owning a TV is sinful. But that's why it is so important to go back to the source material, the secondary source material for pietism. The primary source material is the Bible. But the secondary one, Spanner in the Pia Desideria shows no hostility to right doctrine, to correct dogma, to even presenting it in a systematic way. What he's saying is you cannot forsake the balance between what your head knows and what your hand is doing. Our devotions, our works, our prayers, our love for our neighbor is just as important as knowing Christian doctrine. Both figure into our sanctification, and in his day, devotion and good works were scorned, just as they are today in the modern Lutheran church. Now that said, it's not just about scholasticism some obscure-sounding movement of theological presentation in the Lutheranism, there is also an issue with polemics. He writes, Controversies are not the only or the most important thing, although knowledge of them properly belongs to the study of theology. Not only should we know what is true in order to follow it, but we should also know what is false in order to oppose it. However, not a few stake almost everything on polemics. 
They think that everything has turned out very well if only they know how to give answer to the errors of the Papists, the Reformed, the Anabaptists, etc. They pay no attention to the fruits of those articles of faith, which we presumably still hold in common with them, or of those rules of morality which are acknowledged by us all. The complaint of the ancient and experienced church father, Gregory Nazianzen, about such quarrelsomeness in his time is very penetrating. The sainted Dr. Christopher Scheibler not improperly applied the complaint to our time in the remarkable and excellent preface to his handbook of practical theology, also reprinted as the preface to his useful work, Arifodina. Gregory wrote, we are all godly people for this one reason, that each one of us condemns the rest as godless. Again, quote, we judge who are good and who are evil, not according to their life, but according to their doctrinal agreement or disagreement with us. Again, quote, there are some who quarrel about trivial and useless things, rashly and foolishly claim as many adherents as they can find, and then put up a defense as if the faith were at stake. Thus, this excellent name is weakened by their own strife and contention. Polemics has its place. Polemics, by the way, is just fighting. A polemicist is somebody who goes out there as a shock jock and gives people a good, solid jolt, a punch to the stomach to get them back to their senses and get them thinking about things. Polemics, properly used, shows everybody where their real loyalties lie. Luther is the king of the polemicists. He would go out there and say the Pope was a fart-ass. Why was the Pope a fart-ass? Because he could fart in a jar, and according to his authority as the so-called Vicar of Christ, he could make you sniff it. Just breathe that whole jar in, bro, because the Pope told you to. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic in the 16th century reading this, you are gravely offended. He is the Vicar of Christ. He is the shepherd of the entire church. How dare you say that about him? Unless you're a Catholic who's starting to really get tired of these indulgences and, you know, you can't just keep praying Hail Marys all stinking day for every little sin that you're supposed to go out and confess. And, oh my goodness, uh, why can't I have the cup of communion? Suddenly you find yourself giggling at Luther's little attack and you go, okay, maybe he has a point. Let me see what he's actually saying when he gets into the nuanced topic of it. Again... Polemics has its place sometimes. It is a tool for the church to use. Unfortunately, a whole lot of people doing polemics have forgotten the proper use. They're not shocking people into paying attention and then inviting them to hear the truth. They're just so against people they disagree with that they are not for anything. You've probably heard of discernment ministries. And almost every quote-unquote discernment ministry kind of fits this bill. They're against something, against something, against something. They are always correcting, attacking, rebuking, and exhorting people to stay the heck away from those false teachers, man. Look at Jim Baker. He's bad. Paula White. She's bad. Hillsong. They're bad. By the way, give us more money so we can tell you how Stephen Furtick is bad. 
And they tell you so much who's wrong, 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 that they never get around to telling you what's right. Almost to a man, these discernment ministry polemicists never preach the gospel. They never preach the gospel. Oh, they'll talk about the gospel. They'll say they're defending the gospel. But it is always constantly a bull aiming at the color red. And the color red is any false teacher, supposedly, that they're opposing. And, of course, while they're doing this, they end up in partnerships with other discernment ministries from denominations that are wildly different from their own, to the point where their own theologians would say, why are you partnering with these heterodox people or these outright heretics? What, just because you hate evangelicals and prosperity teachers? Give me a break. Oh, but it's the polemics that brings in the money, so they keep doing it. Given that prevalence of always aiming guns at other denominations instead of just plainly being a witness to the truth, Spenner writes, Compare the writings of our dear Luther, in which he expounds the word of God or treats articles of the Christian faith with the still extant works of many other theologians who lived in and shortly after his time, or with the majority of the books being published today. To speak candidly, in the former one will assuredly encounter and experience great spiritual power, together with wisdom presented with the utmost simplicity, while the latter will seem to be quite empty in contrast. And in the newer books, one will find more materials of showy human erudition, of artificial posturing, and of presumptuous subtleties in matters in which we should not be wise beyond the scriptures. I wonder if our sainted Dr. Luther, were he to be raised up, would not find fault with one thing and another in our universities for which he vigorously upbraided the schools of his own time. To wrap things up, let's talk about that. Luther was a polemicist at times. He said some really nasty things about a lot of people, which is perfectly acceptable in my book because they were all bad. He also taught the truth in simplicity and clarity. And Luther knew his stuff. He knew correct doctrine. This is a doctor of the church. He was a doctor of theology, even with the Roman Catholic Church, before he started really hammering home what the gospel teaches. He even knew his philosophy quite well, may I add. But Luther also constantly exhorted people to devotion. And when he talked about civic righteousness, he said, and I quote, civic righteousness is necessary and cannot be passed by without sin. But it contributes no more to Christian righteousness than do eating, drinking, sleeping, etc. He talked about that balance between understanding we are justified by faith alone and seeking God with our whole hearts. The right balance between faith and works. Works coming out of our faith, living the outward and inwardly righteous life. So after the example of Spener, and also after the example of Dr. Luther, the Catacomb Synod as confessional pietists will not separate doctrine from devotion. And nor will we have empty polemics or quote-unquote discernment without ever speaking the truth. In fact, our main business as the Catacomb Synod is to speak the truth in clarity, in love, 
and with all devotion to our Lord. We will go more into these issues next week, but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.